0: Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another solved true crime case for my Curious Case series. As I'm sure you can probably tell, I am not in my usual filming location. I am actually currently in Paris um, on a bit of a holiday with a few of my friends. I've taken the past month off more or less to have a break, research for more cases, get my head together, get everything together. And I'm feeling so much better now and I'm so excited for 2020 and all the content I'm gonna be sharing with you this year. So do excuse the not so good camera quality and the not so good audio quality. I don't have a microphone with me, so it might be a little bit echoey. I also just wanted to let you know that I now have a PO box. So if you wanted to send me any letters or anything like that, then you can do the address to my PO box is in the description box down below. I hope everybody had a really safe and fun holiday season. I know I had a really fun time, um, and I enjoyed spending my time with all my family and friends. And I wish everyone a happy new year, even though it is <laughs> quite quite into the new year. Um, I hope everyone is having a great new year. I should be posting again twice a week from now onwards. Um, and also should be posting over on my second channel, so be sure to go check that out. I've left a link to my second channel at the top of the description. I'm trying to upload at least once a week over there, so let's see how that pans out. It's my New Year's resolution. I'd just like to point out this video has not been made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case, compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Any theories discussed in this case are just that. They are theories, they are not facts, and they shouldn't be taken as such. And any opinions expressed in this video do not necessarily represent, necessarily? I did that again, I swear I did that in the last video. Do not represent the views of myself, law enforcement or anybody else involved in this case. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. 16th of January 1997 would be a day that would prove pinnacle in the scientific community's wider understanding of sleep violence. And unfortunately, it would cost the Felata family dearly. Yarmila Marie Kleskin, later Yarmila Felaita, was born on the 5th of February 1955 in Arizona, the United States of America. Now, not much is actually known about Yamila's early childhood, but what we do know is that when she went to high school, she met a boy, and this boy was called Scott Louis Felaita. Yarmila's passion was for teaching, and she knew fairly early on that she wanted to become a teacher, and she wanted to pursue that as her career. Both Scott Scott and Jan Miller actually went to college together with Jan Miller going to study in education and Scott's going to study in engineering and they both went on to get their master's degrees in those subjects and while they were at college the couple actually got married. Fortunately both Jan Miller and Scott were both very successful in their degrees so once they graduated they both went on to work in jobs relevant to their degrees with Jan Miller going to go work at a local preschool as an assistant teacher and Scott going on to work as an engineer. Scott actually began work as a product manager for Motorola's semiconductor unit. And on all accounts, the couple had a very happy marriage. Sure, they had the odd argument every now and then, but no more than the average married couple. The pair were, on all accounts, deeply in love with one another and they had always been faithful. Due to their jobs, they had a fairly stable financial record and they had no history of any financial misjuggling or any financial difficulties. They are in a very fortunate financial position. They lived in a moderately sized home in Phoenix, Arizona, and soon had two kids, a son and a daughter. Both their children were honor students at school. They even adopted a golden retriever and another dog from the local pound, who both quickly became part of the family. By the time Jan Miller was 44 years old, the couple had actually begun to plan for their retirement. They both were very active in their local Mormon church, and they were in the very fortunate position to be able to potentially retire early. Due to their religious beliefs as Mormons, they didn't drink and they didn't use substances. However, this dream life that the Felaitas had built for themselves was soon to come crashing down all around them. And in a rare murder case, the tragic events that would strike the Felata family would be studied by medical professionals and lawyers from across the world. Let's go back to Thursday the 16th of January, 1997. The day started off just as normally as every other Thursday that had come before it for the small Arizona family. The children had both gone to bed at some time between 9pm and 9.30pm, leaving their mother to finish reading her book in front of the television. Scott, their father, was sat at the family computer trying to invent a new game for their church's youth group. To the children, at least, nothing seemed amiss. Nothing seemed to be wrong. However, just an hour after the children had gone to bed, two neighbors to the Felater household heard a commotion coming from the house. They went outside into their garden to try and get a look at what was going on and to try and investigate what was happening. And that is when they heard, allegedly, a woman screaming, please, please don't. And that was then followed by what sounded like footsteps on a gravel path. According to the Arizona Republic, one of the neighbors actually climbed up onto a planter so they could see over the fence and get a better look at what was going on next door. To their surprise, they saw Yolanda lying on her right side on the ground, but her arms and legs were still moving. That was until she rolled over onto her back and she stopped The article from the Arizona Republic goes on to say that the neighbors then saw a light turn on on a upper floor of the fellators house and then they then saw Scott walking around in the house before leaving and standing over his wife. Scott allegedly stared at Jan Miller for just over a minute before going back into the house. He later emerged from the garage of the house wearing gloves. He then dragged his wife into the family swimming pool, held her underwater, and drowned her. It was as Scott was forcing Jan Miller into the swimming pool that the two neighbors that were watching this, secretly from afar, father- started to call 911 to get emergency services to come and help. This is when the case starts to get a bit strange. When the police arrived on the scene and they got to the Flacer household, they found Scott and the two children fast asleep upstairs in their beds. When Scott heard a commotion coming from downstairs in his house, he woke up, walked downstairs, and was asking, What was wrong? What happened? Why were all these police officers in his house? It's important to note that Scott was now wearing pajamas different to the clothes that were described by the two neighbors, and these pajamas had no blood on them whatsoever. Scott told the responding officers that his wife had fallen asleep on the sofa downstairs while reading a book and he had gone to bed at some point between 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. The police noted that Scott actually had blood on his neck and his arm. He had scratches on his fingers and he had scratches on his forearm, but he couldn't provide the investigating officers with any reasonable explanation of why they were there or why the blood was there. He just was like, I have no idea, I I don't know how that got there. The investigators then discovered a Tupperware container inside of a plastic bag in the wheel well of his Volvo station wagon car that had been parked in the garage. Inside that Tupperware, investigators discovered blooded clothes. Scott, who was 41 at the time, was then arrested early that Friday morning on suspicion of murder. The evidence in this case overwhelmingly pointed at Scott. And so far in this case, I'm sure you all think too that Scott is 100% guilty and he 100% needs to go to prison. His bloody clothes, the blood found on his body, the unexplained scratches, and the two witness testimonies all point towards Scott as being the murderer. But one major thing really bothered the police, why? What was his motive? Jan Miller's body was taken for an autopsy to determine her exact cause of death, as they were initially unable to ascertain whether she had succumbed to the knife injuries, the drowning, or both. And it was sadly determined that the 41-year-old Jan Miller succumbed to a combination of her injuries that night, leaving behind two children, a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. Now this is where the case begins to get slightly weird. When the police spoke to Scott at the police station, he insisted that he had been asleep. Scott had been immediately taken into the police station for questioning by the investigators. He told the detectives that he had no memory of what had happened whatsoever. He said he couldn't remember doing it at all. He went on to say that he had been married to her his entire adult life, The marriage had been happy, she was a good mother, a good wife, and she didn't deserve to die. And it seemed to the investigators, as it seems to many outside people, that the marriage was very happy. Scott insisted that he had been asleep during the attack, which, if Scott is to be believed, really gives us two possibilities. Either Scott hadn't been responsible for the murder there might have been somebody else a third party somebody else who had killed his wife or scott had killed his wife and blacked out perhaps due to psychosis perhaps due to something else or perhaps due to sleepwalking. Due to the witness statements and the evidence collected from the crime scene, it seemed highly unlikely that a third party had been involved in this murder. Therefore, the investigators began to look towards similar cases where the perpetrator had committed a crime while sleepwalking. Scott's defense team also began to look at these similar cases and began to build a sleepwalking defense. According to psychologytoday.com, one of the most infamous sleepwalking crime cases is the case of Kenneth Parks. In 1987, Kenneth Parks rose one night from bed, drove roughly 14 miles to his in-laws' house and assaulted them. He bludgeoned his mother-in-law to death and attacked his father-in-law, who fortunately survived. Kenneth then drove to a local police station and confessed to the killings. Kenneth said he'd been sleepwalking the entire time, throughout the drive, throughout the attack, and even when he went to the police station. He said that he hadn't been aware of what he was doing and he had only trace memories of the events. Kenneth had a long history, dating back to his childhood, of complex and extended sleepwalking episodes that were triggered by stress. Around the time of the killings, Kenneth was under significant stress. He had developed a serious gambling problem. He had been fired from his job and he was facing embezzling charges. Kenneth underwent sleep testing that showed irregular brain activity during his sleep, which are actually consistent with some types of parasomnia. Also, when he arrived at the police station, Kenneth had serious wounds to both of his hands, though the police said he did not appear to be experiencing any pain. This would suggest a disassociative state that can be a part of sleepwalking. In this particular case, Kenneth Park was acquitted on all charges. Further to this case, psychologytoday.com goes on to list another case, which is the case of Brian Thomas. In 2008, Christine Thomas was strangled to death by her husband, Brian, while the British couple were vacationing in a camper in Wales. Brian Thomas was charged with murder. He said he had been having an intense nightmare in which he was fighting off an intruder, though when he woke up, he realized he'd actually been strangling his wife. Sleep experts said Thomas had been experiencing night terrors. Night terrors are a very intense and frightening type of sleep episode, which can be accompanied by screaming as well as sudden violent movements or even fighting. Forensic sleep evidence led to the prosecution asking for the case against Brian Thomas to be dropped. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting for Brian to be found not guilty. Now obviously, Scott's case came way before Brian's case, but I thought it was still important to note. Scott's defense team told jurors during the trial that Scott did it without any conscious thought. However, the prosecution in this case didn't entertain the sleepwalking defense one bit, and they wanted to seek the death penalty. How could somebody sleep through stabbing their wife 44 times in the chest? drowning them, then going and getting changed and putting your clothes in a toughware box, in the footwell of your car, going and putting fresh pyjamas on and then getting back into bed. Now researchers told the courts of how it is very 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 common for sleepwalkers to carry out habitual tasks while they are sleepwalking. Scott had actually become accustomed to storing his work clothes in the same fashion that he stored the bloody clothes in his car. So the defense argued that this habitual task would be highly likely to have been carried out during sleepwalking, so that made sense. Though in my opinion, if you're using the habitual task defense with sleepwalking, Stabbing someone 44 times isn't exactly a habitual task for the majority of us, I would hope so. The prosecution then argues that this habitual routine defense actually goes against a previous statement given by Scott, which said that Scott only stored clothes in his car, for emergency use only, like for emergency occasions, and that it wasn't a habitual routine that he stole his work clothes in his car. Despite the holes appearing in Scott's story, the defense maintained the sleepwalking defense. Perhaps Scott was having a night terror in which he was stabbing an attacker. However, he was truly stabbing his wife. Though the prosecution too began to find holes in Scott's story and holes in the defense. After Scott had been brought in for interrogations, he was quickly assessed by a psychologist to determine his state of mind. The handwritten notes taken by that psychologist played a pretty important part in the prosecution of this case. One of the key handwritten notes taken by that psychologist was, Unforgivable sin, not continuing to grow, getting stuck in life. These notes were argued to show a series of unconnected observations by the defense, but argued by the prosecution to be a disjointed narrative. The prosecution focused on Scott's motive for the murder as being this some some kind of rectification for an unforgivable sin. This unforgivable sin could be a multitude of things in the Mormon doctrine. I'm not super, super clued up on the Mormon faith, on the Mormon religion but there are several things that stand, stood out to the prosecution in this case. Perhaps Jan Miller simply didn't attend temple anymore, she didn't go to church, which according to the prosecution, could be seen as an unforgivable sin. Or perhaps Scott murdered Jan Miller because Jan Miller didn't want to have any more children with him, which again could be seen according to the prosecution, as an unforgivable sin. The prosecution gathered testimony from those around the Felata family and discovered that in the lead up to Jan Miller's death, the marriage seems to have been falling apart. Perhaps this unforgivable sin was Jan Miller's desire to leave Scott. Due to a change in their Mormon church's policies, Yarmila was actually forced to cut off old friends, which led her to become depressed. Yarmila, likely due to this depression, began to become quite unkempt in her appearance. She didn't seem to care too much about her appearance, according to one of her friends. Shortly before her death, however, according to the same friend, Yarmila actually lost 40 pounds. She started to ride her bicycle more and she started to pay attention more to her, her appearance. She started to seem as if she was coming out the other side of any of this depressive episode As you can imagine this case drew in a lot of attention due to the unique sleepwalking defense After all we all sleep So it's scary to think that one day you may wake up next to your partner having stabbed them in your sleep. The defense and the prosecution brought in a multitude of sleep experts to the courtroom to give testimony, expert witness testimony in this trial, and to educate the jury on sleep science. However, these expert witnesses were very conflicting. Some explained of how Scott must have been asleep while he committed the crime where others explained that he must have been awake when he committed the crime. It really came down to which expert witness the jury trusted more. Who out of all of these expert witnesses did the jury want to take their word for? Who seemed to them to be the most credible? The records show that Scott had no criminal history whatsoever and no violent past. A UCLA law professor called Peter Arnella told the Arizona Republic that if the defendant is someone who has no violent history, the jurors will likely be looking for a reason or justification for them killing their wife. If the defendant is someone who has no significant history of any prior violent action, then the jury is going to look at the crime and say to themselves, this is something that is quite out of character. Let's take this sleepwalking defense more seriously. And it's that jury attitude that the defense is banking on in winning this case. However, a lot of the members of public began to find the length of Scott's sleepwalking episode to be of particular interest. According to some sources, a typical sleepwalking episode lasts around five minutes on average, at a push. Whereas Scott's sleepwalking episode lasted up to 55 minutes long. Some members of the public began to have a conversation about what to do when somebody is sleepwalking. And the most important rule that everybody knows is to not disturb them. The defense told the court of how the filators were having issues with their swimming pools pump system. The defense proposed a theory that Scott had been sleepwalking. He had got up in the night in a sleepwalking state, gone outside and begun to play with the pool pump to try and get it to work again. Uh, it's just a chore that he had on his mind and could it be in a task that easily could have been sleepwalked. We all know it's very, very common to dream about things that you have in your mind. It is then proposed that your Miller awoke from her sleep on the sofa in the living room, saw that her husband was fiddling with something outside, and went out to investigate and see what was going on and make sure everything was okay. Yarmila then touched Scott, perhaps to get his attention, not realizing that he was sleepwalking, and in reaction to being touched, it triggered a very violent response from Scott. Perhaps Scott had been holding some kind of knife or a tool or a screwdriver while he was trying to fix the pump in his sleep. And due to being frightened by his wife, he turned around and started stabbing his attacker, which he allegedly thought was going on in, his, in, his, in this dream. He started stabbing his attacker, which was his wife. And then in this dream, he wanted to ensure that his attacker was dead, so he killed her. He drowned her. But how in all of that do you prove that Scott was asleep? And how do you prove that that was the dream Scott has? You can't. You, you really can't prove that that was the dream that Scott had. Some expert witnesses told the courts that the more complex an action is, the less likely they are asleep while doing it. Scott then took to the stand to try and convince the jury of his innocence. However, the jury, after two hours of Scott's giving testimony, were not convinced at all. According to ABC15, one juror commented after the trial, I think he could have been sleepwalking when he stabbed his wife. The possibility exists, but we don't know. There is no witness, but when he dragged the body, I think he woke up. He could have been sleepwalking, woke up, and he saw, oh no, look at this, and I think he panicked. The prosecution proposed that Scott may have heard of the Kenneth Parks case, the man who was acquitted of killing his mother-in-law due to sleepwalking, and he used the defense as his backup plan in the event that an unknown attacker ploy failed. The jury then came to a verdict in June of 1999. They deliberated for eight hours. They found Scott for guilty of murdering his wife, Jan Miller, for later. Scott now faced two possible sentences, the more likely death penalty or the less likely life in prison. Both Scott's children testified in court that they wanted to continue to get to know their father and they wanted to continue to have him in their lives. Jan Miller's mother, Scott's mother-in-law, also testified in court to say that she wanted her grandchildren to have their father in their lives despite him being in prison. Subsequently, the judge in this case declined to enforce the death penalty and sentenced Scott Felater to life in prison without the possibility of parole. According to a public study by Maurice O'Hein and Carlos Schneck titled, Violent Behaviour During Sleep, Prevalence, Comorbidity and Consequences, Violent Behaviours During Sleep or VBS is actually quite frequent within the general population. The study took a random stratified sample of 19,961 participants, all 15 years and older, from the general population of Finland, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and the United Kingdom. The results had a confidence interval of 95%, which means that these results were fairly accurate. And the study found that VBS, Violent Behavioral During Sleep, was reported by 1.7% of the sample. Further to this, during these VBS episodes, 61.5 percent of VBS subjects reported vivid dreams and 24.6 percent of them hurt themselves or others. Interestingly, but not surprisingly, those with a family history of VBS or sleep terrors reported suffering from those more than those without a family history, which could imply a genetic link. To me, it seems very likely that you could be hit or punched if you are sleeping next to somebody who has a history of VBS or has a family history of VBS but being stabbed 44 times and then drowns, that doesn't seem super likely to me. That doesn't sit right. That's a 50 minute period of a VBS episode. According to a study conducted by the Stanford University School of Medicine, about 8.4 million people or about 3.6% of the population are actually prone to sleepwalking. Episodes of sleepwalking are more likely to occur just a few hours after somebody has fallen asleep. Sleepwalking episodes are typically brief, as I mentioned earlier, and can last just a few minutes, up to around five minutes on average. Again, I find it so hard to believe that a violent sleepwalking episode lasted that long as it did in Scott's case. I couldn't actually determine whether Scott had a record of sleepwalking or a history of sleepwalking. After all, the only person who could be a credible witness to give that information would have been Yamila herself. I want to know what you guys think of this case. Do you think that Scott was truly sleepwalking or do you think he was using that defense to cover up what he had done to cover his tracks? A true concrete motive for this murder also doesn't really exist, as far as I'm aware. Would somebody really murder their wife for not having any more children with them? Sadly, people have been killed due to weaker motives before. I don't personally know enough about the Mormon religion to be able to comment on this, but it doesn't seem like a strong enough motive to me. And that's everything that I have for you in today's video. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. Happy New Year to everybody, and as I said at the beginning of this video, I hope everybody had a safe and fun holiday season. As I said again at the beginning of this video, I'm aiming to get back on a a two-video-a-week schedule on the main channel, and a a one-video-a-week schedule on my second channel, so be sure to subscribe to my second channel. You can find it in the iCards, or you can find it at the top of the description. If you want to see more true crime cases just like this one that you haven't really heard of before, then go ahead and hit that subscribe button and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new true crime video. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. same at all. All this time I've been thinking about you, thinking what I gotta love. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com.